Welcome to The Uncertainty Principle. It is a science podcast brought to you by the Curio Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Taryn Lobenstein. And I'm Dr. Ben McAllister. And Taryn, that was such an enthusiastic intro. <laughs> Thank you. That was that hello. I mean, how are your waveforms? Are they peaking over there? I mean, <laughs> hello! <laughs> Just really excited to be here with you, Ben. Um... Did you know that I'm a marine biologist? Hey, I did know that. And did you know that I'm a physicist? This is the first time I'm hearing this. I thought you were just a comedian. (laughs) Brand new information. Well, you know, (laughs) I can see why you'd think that. (laughs) So we're here to walk you through the weird and wondrous world of science. Uh, But we're not here to just talk about cold, hard facts, because we explore the intersections of science with history, politics, and culture. Because... Science doesn't happen in a void, baby. It's real. It's wild. It's happening live. So we're going to talk all about that. This is our second episode. Last time we spoke all about uh, a very uh, thorny subject in the sometimes dangerous world of bees. Always dangerous. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about something different. Uh, Before we get on to what we're talking about, we're going to have a little break in the middle where we're going to chat to a guest about something completely unrelated. So if the thing we're talking about isn't for you, well, there'll be something in the program for you. Yeah. There's lots to cover. I'm very excited to hear from our guest today. But to explain to you the format, because we've we've had some people think that we're both in on this, and and the reality yeah. is only one of us does research. The only the other person is here to just go on this journey with you and learn with you yeah. together. We're like a guide on a journey of discovery. So this week, I've done a bunch of research on our topic. Taryn's done well. I'm not going to say no research, <laughs> but she hasn't. She's done no research for the purpose of this episode. Uh, and I'm going to talk Taryn through the science. Um, so with that out of the way, should we jump in, Taryn? Yes, please. Let's go. All right. Taryn, today we're talking about something which is both very near and dear to my heart and also currently near and dear to my physical body. Uh, Ooh, we're me talking, too. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. We're talking about that good, dusty old grape juice that they call wine. Uh, what are you drinking, yeah. Ben? What are you drinking? I'm I'm drinking a little chilled Chardonnay. <gasps> That's exactly what I'm having! Oh, shit! Yeah, so for context, I'm in Perth, Taryn's in Canberra. Um, we are drinking wine. Uh, <laughs> sh- shit, I mean, I-, I guess it makes sense. Taryn was recently in Perth, and we went on a, a little tour of uh, the WA wine region in Margaret River together. We had a very fun time. We oh stopped my and we God. a bunch of wines. It was fantastic. I've never been more in awe of wine and also, like, drunker. <laughs> that was, oh, just a magnificent yeah. journey. Yeah, it was sort of partially a motivation for this episode topic. We were having so much fun down there learning about all the wine and tasting all the wine. Margaret River, as it turns out, very well-known region for Chardonnay, the grape we're both consuming. So there you go. And I discovered that that I like it. I I thought I hated Chardonnay before this trip. And now I'm I'm on Team Shardy. I just want Chard all day, every day. Well, not. But hey. Most days. In moderation. (laughs) Careful also. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I want shard means something else in Australian culture. Oh, no. uh, Don't worry about it. So, Taryn, before we get into talking about the history, the science of wine, the future of wine, which is some of the things that we're going to talk about today, uh, I'd like you to tell me, what do you know about wine, Taryn? Oof. Um, I mean, I know everything that you told me on our trip, but filtered through... (laughs) A, a wine-soaked memories, so, like, they're not yeah. super clear. I know that it's made of fermented grapes. Yeah. I feel like the French have a term, terroir, which is about how, like, the where oh, you grow it, Taryn. right? 
where you grow it, like, makes it taste good and different. You do know things. Uh, but in the meantime, how about we define wine? Uh, you got pretty close. Wine is an alcoholic drink typically made from fermented grape juice. Now, I say oh. typically made from fermented grape juice because wine is a concept you've probably heard of, like, rice wine, plum wine, whatever, oh, cherry yeah. wine. Like, you can really make wine out of anything, any kind of fruit. I will say there are a lot of different kinds of wine, and we have a relatively limited amount of time. So today, we are going to be talking about... Grape wine. The, the, the wine I'm, made out I'm of okay grapes. with that. It still sounds like there's yeah. a lot of ground to cover. Oh, there is so much. Um, and with that, I'd like to jump in, if I may, to the history of wine. Ooh, let's go. A little bit of that wine history. Take me so back. First... Take me back in time, Ben. Well, we're going back a long fucking way, because the first thing you've got to know about wine is that it is very, very, very old, dating back to at least 6,000 BCE and Whoa. possibly 7,000 BCE. Yeah, that's really? right. So, yeah. I mean, there's some interesting shit here. So I want to give a shout out to Jiahu, which was a Neolithic village in the Yellow River Valley, which is in China. Shout where out. There was, yeah, shout out Jiahu. Uh, there's some evidence that was uncovered of a fermented drink involving grapes dating back to 7,000 to 6,600 BCE. They don't know exactly when, but the, the thing that's notable about this is like... This isn't just like the first maybe wine, and I'll explain why I mean maybe in a minute, but Mm -hmm. this is the first recorded evidence of an alcoholic beverage in the world. It was found in this place in Jiahu. Yeah, yeah, major shout out to them. So they did a chemical analysis of absorbed organic molecules in fragments of pottery, and they Mm -hmm. found evidence of a mixed fermented drink that contained uh, honey and, and rice and some fruits, possibly hawthorn fruit and possibly grapes, which is why we say, all right, this is definitely a kind of wine. It's definitely, like, something. But given we're talking about grape wine today, it, it, it's questionable whether they get the crown for the first wine. Certainly, by 6,000 BCE in Georgia, there is grape wine being made. So, you know, that's why I say at least 6,000 BCE, possibly as far back as 7,000 BCE. So there's been evidence, more recent evidence in 2017, from pottery fragments in the state, not not U.S. state, state country of <laughs> country. Georgia. Yeah, that's so right. So you could say that we're uh, drinking history tonight. You could say that, Taryn. Maybe that'll be the subtitle of this episode. Um <laughs> Not that that's a thing we've been doing. Uh, Okay, so either way, whether it's Georgia or Jiahu, wine is very, very old, and it was followed pretty much quickly, and we assume independently, all over the world. I mean, Iran, Sicily, the New World, like people people were making grape wine and other non-grape wines for a very, very long time. And we're so proud of them for doing it. <laughs> I know, proud and also, yeah, like we owe them a, a debt of gratitude. Grateful. But there yeah. is, there's an interesting thing here that I want to dive into, which is that like some sociologists, historians, archaeologists don't think just that like, oh, c- civilizations began to emerge and they started making alcoholic beverages. Mm-hmm. Some sociologists, archaeologists, historians believe that the creation of wine was one of the major driving factors behind the development of civilization. Oh, hell yes. Are you telling me that we were like, this shit is so delicious that we must form static societies around it so that we may continue to consume it? I mean, that's one of the major theories, right? I mean, I was going to get to that one in a minute, but yeah, pr- pretty much. Yes. Like, we've been we've been saying for ages that like agriculture, the shift from hunter gathering to agriculture, was critical in terms of developing civilization as we as we kind of understand it today. And a lot of people now agree. Uh, notably, this archaeologist named Patrick McGovern is mm-hmm. on the record saying he believes that the desire for a more reliable source of alcohol may have been like a key motivator to create 
great agriculture. So like yes. we've been finding there's a lot of there's a lot of naturally occurring alcohols in nature, like fruits get overripe and they start fermenting and they become like vaguely alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And people were just like eating those and consuming them and getting kind of drunk. And then oh, yeah, wait, Patrick squirrels McGovern, do that now, don't they? I yeah, feel like there's, yeah. there's and, a lot of fun internet videos of squirrels like getting accidentally drunk. <laughs> On fermented berries. I don't know about squirrels, but monkeys certainly do it. And yeah, so at least some archaeologists believe that early Homo sapiens just enjoyed it. They were like, we got to try and make some of this stuff. Ended up creating agriculture accidentally whilst in the <laughs> process of creating alcohol. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, that's interesting. Uh, other theories, there is the, the drunken monkey theory, which oh, is a theory proposed please, by Dustin. Please tell me this yeah. theory. I'm very interested. This, this is a theory proposed by Dustin Stevens and Robert Dudley, which claims that the theory proposes, I should say, that early monkeys developed a sense for alcoholic beverages. Like, they developed a a taste for it and a smell for it that attracted them towards it because the presence of alcohol, the smell of alcohol, the taste Mm -hmm. of alcohol, was a key indicator of the ripeness of fruit. And when there's competition for the ripeness of fruit amongst different monkeys hanging out in the jungle, being able to detect, like, alcohol aroma and being attracted to that alcohol aroma is also, like, a selective advantage. So... Are they, like, eating already fermented fruit to the point of it being alcoholic, or is it just that there's, like, small amounts of it right when it's the right amount of ripeness, but then when you push too far, it's, like wine. I, I think it's probably somewhere in between. Like the, the mm. fruit that's really ripe is very high in sugars. It's also likely to be alcoholic um, ah, okay. to, to some extent. And then they're eating like a ton of that fruit. Uh, and there's one other thing, like some people have said that uh, early Homo sapiens may have had an advantage over other hominid species because drinking alcohol versus drinking water, you were less likely to have like microbes in there that are damaging because of the antiseptic properties of alcohol. Oh, so because alcohol is killing those bacteria, it's better to be drinking that than like the nasty water River that they water. would have otherwise yeah, that's, had. That's right. And then, of course, there's, you know, just the, the social aspects. Many sociologists believe that early civilizations moving from agriculture, sorry, from a hunter-gathering to agriculture would have been a, di- a difficult shift, and alcohol probably played a pretty important role as a social lubricant. Ah, um, so we've been, happy. again, keeping up with our ancestors in that we are using alcohol to make things easier when we're meeting people for the first time or having to live with other people that we might not have before. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but woof, do I ever do that one? Uh, <laughs> if I got to go to, yeah, meet a whole bunch of people, one one drink really settles the old nerves down. Yeah, there um, you go. I will say, by the way, just want a quick shout out. If you're not into alcohol, that's totally cool. I think the science of wine, the history of wine is just interesting enough on its own that this is like a worthwhile topic to explore. I mean, I've um, already learned like three new things and we've only been talking for like 10 minutes, so I can't yeah, wait to it, hear the rest. <laughs> Exactly. And I mean, like, certainly, whether or not it's social lubricant, we know that alcohol plays an enormously important part in a lot of cultures around the world. There's religious significance. A lot of religious ceremonies involve alcohol mm. of some kind. Early medicine typically involves alcohol. Uh, so we, we, we know it's been important in one way or another in early society. But... That's all I want to talk about the history of wine, Taryn, because whilst there's good science in there discovering the history and the evolution, we're going to talk about the art and science of winemaking. Oh, boy. Now, I'm both excited and a little nervous about this part because, as we said earlier, we just went on a wine tour, and, and some yeah. people could get, get real into their uh, jargon, their, their really yeah. wine-specific words, and they'd say, oh, this has been fermented on oak, and this is... I don't even know. Do you- it's my hope that by the end of this segment of the show, I can explain like what some of those words that you've heard mean and like how they relate to each other. That would be great, because I'm um... tired of pretending at parties like I know what someone means <laughs> when they say, oh, this one yeah. is a, 
an aged Vitello, and I'm like, yes, yes, me too. Um, so I want to say up top, there's a lot of different styles of winemaking. I'm going to be talking in pretty general terms. A lot of it depends on the type of grape and the type of finished wine that you want. So okay. broadly speaking, before we get to the winemaking, we should talk about the fact that there are a couple of different kinds of wine. Very broadly speaking, you got red. your red wines, you white. got your white wines, you got your sparkling Pink. wines. Oh, yeah, you got you got your you got your rosés and you got your dessert wines, and oh. that's kind of the order from like driest to sweetest wine wise. And then you know within those different styles of wine, there's lots of different grapes. Uh, you may have heard of some of these. You may be familiar with them. I'm just going to rattle off the, the just the ten most common grapes in the world. Ooh, can so, I try to guess? Okay, cool. Yeah, hang on. That's that's a lot of fun. Let me let me pull up my list here. And okay, then you can try and guess what they are. Okay, ten. Ooh, okay, is Chardonnay a grape? Okay, so I, I need to know whether you believe it's a grape before you give me an answer. Okay, I'm just like gonna I... guess. I'm just gonna guess. Okay. Chardonnay. Chardonnay is one of them. Yes. Uh, Pinot Noir. That is one of them. That is one of them. Um, other red ones. Uh, uh, uh Cabernet. I don't think yep. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm just going to cut you off here. Uh, uh, the most popular grape in the world is Cabernet Sauvignon, commonly just called Cabernet when it's shortened or blended with other things. Okay. So I'm just going to list them now. Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Ariane, Tempranillo, Chardonnay, Syrah or Shiraz, Grenache, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Trebbiano Toscano, and Pinot Noir are the top 10 most popular grapes by consumption. I nailed so, it. I nailed it. Yeah, you got, you got some of them in there, so that's, that's good news. And yeah, I mean, as we said, there's lots of styles. You've probably heard some of these words. Pressed versus not pressed, natural wine, skin contact wine, bottle fermented, barrel fermented, oak or steel tanks fermented in clay, right? Like, you've heard all these things. There's, there's... Yeah, and I don't know the difference. <laughs> yeah, there's wild fermentation, there's malolactic fermentation, there's late harvest grapes. And guess what, Taryn? In the next, mm. like, five to ten minutes, you're going to know what all those things mean. <sighs> oh boy, okay. I feel like I should take notes. Okay. I'm just going to learn. No, I'm just going to learn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just just listen. Just feel it. Take a sip. Take a sip between don't, every stage of the winemaking process. Don't mind if I process. do. Okay. Yeah. If you wanted one key takeaway about how wine is made, the short answer is grapes contain sugar, this thing called glucose, and there is a process known as fermentation where yeast, these good little organisms, get in there, they eat the sugar, and they poop out ethanol, which is the Yum. good, good stuff that makes the brain feel good. Uh, that's the, that's the is, broad structure. Is pooping it out the technical term? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that is the technical term. Okay, good. Uh, that's the, the very broad strokes. Let's talk about some of the steps. The first thing you got to do is harvest those grapes, baby. Sometimes that's a mechanical process. Usually it's done by hand. And when in the sort of life cycle of the grape, whether it's more ripe or less ripe, early harvest, late harvest, affects how much sugar is in the grape. Later sure. harvest grapes tend to have a lot more sugar in them, uh, or, or at least they're, they're kind of shriveled and then the, the sugar is more concentrated and they're more suited yeah. to dessert wine. It's like what so we were talking about one. before with the monkeys, right? Like the riper yeah, gets the right. more developed the sugars are. Okay. Yeah. So you got to pick the grapes at the right time. That's step one. Then you got to press those boys and make a pulp or must. That's the second step. When I say must, it's called must. must. The combination. Yeah. When you like pulp up the grapes, you press them down. It's called a must because you must have it, Tara. Mm. It's like s'mores. Okay. You know the American term s'more? I do know a s'more. Because you got to um, have some more. So you've, you've got your must, and at this point, the process is pretty similar, whether it's, you know, red wine or, or white wine or whatever. But this is the first major divergence. If you're making red wine, you've got your red grapes, your Pinot Noirs, your Merlots, your Cabernet Sauvignons, or what have you. You are leaving the skin of the wine 
on the juice. And the skin's going to impart chemical compounds, these things called tannins, which are like a bitter chemical compound that exists in the skins and the stems. You've probably heard of tannins, and people talk about wine. They're that kind of like bitter, mouth-drying thing. And that is like, if you want something that's quite tannic, you've got to leave the skins on it. So that's common in red wine. Yeah, red wines, right? They have that sort of like... Yeah. That's how I will describe Mm. the sensation. That mouth coating flavor. <laughs> yeah. With with white wine, you're going to want to remove the skins, uh, so you've just got the juice at this point. So there's a lot less tannin in the white wine, and that's why they, you know, aren't as like full bodied and, and heavy on the palate. Uh, okay, so red wines have skins, which imparts tannins. White wines yes. do not have skins, no tannins. Less tannins. That's well, right. Fewer tannins. And okay. If you wanna if you wanna make rosé. Maybe mm. you just leave the skins on with your red juice for a little bit and then take them away. And that gives you a kind of pinkish hue to the grape. So, so wait, not... so are there, I, I probably should know this by now, but a rosé, it's not yeah. like a special, it's own type of grape. It's just how long you leave the skin on the grape. Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of rosés are just made out of, yeah, common red drinking grapes and they leave the skins on a little bit after they crush them. And so then like they don't impart all the color and all the tannic structure, then they just kind of get a bit pink. And if you've ever had or heard of orange wine, it's a similar process, but with white grapes. You crush up those white grapes, you leave the skin on there for a little bit, and now you got orange wine happening. Oh, so that's, I always thought orange, I don't know. The whole point is, I, I don't know. And now I do. Yeah. <laughs> this is now we're learning. All right. So that's the first major divergence. Once you've got your juice, with or without your skins, you're going to put that shit in some big steel tanks. Now, again, this is general because you can also do it in a barrel or you can do it in a clay You can pot do it in a box. Like you can do use. it with a fox. You can do it over here. You can do it anywhere. Yeah, well, exactly. You can do it anywhere, and people have been for a long time. But the point is, what we're going in for here is primary fermentation. So we're putting that stuff in our big fermentation vessel, usually a steel tank, and we're adding sometimes sugar, sometimes not sugar, sometimes people are adding yeasts, and sometimes people are just saying, I'm not going to add any yeast to my winemaking procedure. I'm going to rely on the natural yeast that has occurred in the vineyard, the natural yeast that is just in the juice already, and then you're doing what's called a wild fermentation. Is that a term you've heard before when wine tasting, Taryn? I think it is, and it always sounds very romantic, like... This is yeah. a wild fermentation. Like, like yeah. we're just out here, we're just out here harvesting this wild ferment, and we're we're putting it in your glass. And it sounds very romantic and and windswept to me. I mean, Taryn, I know that you have like a, a long standing goal to end up like on a ranch somewhere. Oh yeah, like hanging out doing wild fermented wines or whatever. <laughs> not really necessarily knowing what it means. So that, that that tracks to me that that's what you would think. But yeah, no, that's the difference between a wild ferment and a non wild fermented wine is whether the yeast is naturally occurring or whether yeast is being being added. There's a lot of delicate winemaking involved in whether or not you add the yeast. Uh, There's like catalogs of yeasts you can buy, like winemaker's yeasts, so many different types. And they can steer the the ultimate flavor of the wine in a different direction based on like the strain of yeasts. You can get like a yeast that's going to make you have like a nice fruity full-bodied thing. You can get Mm. a yeast that's going to give you like a nice dry thing, or you can just let the natural yeast take over. Either way, whether you've added sugar, whether you've added yeast, what you've got happening is primary fermentation. So this is where most of the alcohol gets made. So the yeast which are these they're alive they're basically a type of fungus they There's ingest fungus the among us. i'm sorry i couldn't help <laughs> and myself and among your wine 
Yeah, you shouldn't help yourself, Taryn. You should you should lean in. Um, so they they the yeasts they they take the glucose in, and then there's this process called glycolysis. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Glycolysis. Glycolysis sounds more correct. Okay. I am so a biologist. The, yeah, well, exactly. You're the biologist. I've only read these terms. So the glucose is broken down in a process called glycolysis. The product of that glycolysis, there's two different sugars and this uh, a really amazing thing called adenosine triphosphate, which is... ADP, from my year 10 baby. Biology, ATP. ATP, that, yeah, which I learned about in year 10 biology, is essentially like a chemical form of energy. Yeah. It's like the same thing that gets produced in our bodies when we respire. When we break down glucose, you take in like sugars, you take in oxygen, and your body turns that into energy and creates this stuff called ATP. So the same thing is going on here. The glucose is being broken down, you're getting ATP. The yeast consumes all that ATP and it multiplies and spreads and like it grows, right? So like the yeast is feeding on the sugar, the yeast is getting bigger. And as a byproduct, the two other sugars that are created in the glycolysis are converted into carbon dioxide and ethanol, which is the good stuff. So good stuff. That's what we want. Ethanol is the alcohol that goes in wine. And this process, glycolysis and the generation of the ethanol, takes a couple of weeks. And during this time, the winemaker can monitor all kinds of different chemical levels, the ethanol levels, the acidity levels, so like monitoring the pH of the tanks, and you know, get a sense of, of what's going on inside. Very scientific. Indeed. So here is the second major divergence in the winemaking process, which is now what you're going to do is you're going to decide whether you are going to press the skins, be they or be they not present, depending on the kind of wine you're making, to get all the juice out of them. In fact, what you're probably doing is running off all the juice out of the tank, and then you're, you're pressing what's left inside and getting more juice out of that, right? So you've got your big tank, it either contains skins or doesn't, you've had the fermentation, you've got the alcohol where you want it, you get out all the free-running juice, and then you bring in some pressure and you press down those skins to get the rest of the juice. And if you are most winemakers, you're blending the pressed juice and the free-running juice together. If you're a really fancy person, winemaker, you don't blend those. And you say, oh, no, no, we don't press our skins. It gives the wines a finer character when they're free-running juices. Oh, so you can sell that, like, non-pressed stuff for, like, double? Uh, You can certainly market it as being like we don't press our skins and we just have this like fruity free flowing juicy wine. It's Some like people free range don't. wine, like like you know free range chickens. It's like the wine yeah, just absolutely. it exits when it wants, you know. We're not trying to force anybody here. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's definitely that's definitely true, but also at the same time, there's like 15 different things in wine that you can do to it that are like that, right? Like, if you're like, oh, this is a natural orange wild fermented wine that we don't press the skins on. Like, you're compounding all of these different fancy wine terms. Oh, I love that. I um, love for that. The next thing that happens here is you've got an optional secondary fermentation that can occur. And this is a type of fermentation that you probably hear about a lot these days called malolactic fermentation. Oh, I remember this, this is a process. when we were on our trip. Yeah. Somebody mentioned it. It's very it. popular. I liked the taste of it. It's a very popular process done in red wines and some white wines, like that Chardonnay that we're both sipping on right now, where the process is you convert an acid that's present naturally called L-malic acid, which is quite sharp and acidic, mm-hmm. into L-plus lactic acid. Lactic acid being related to lactose and being a kind of milky, buttery kind of flavor on the palate. Oh. So when you do the malolactic fermentation, you convert some of the sharp flavor into like a smooth buttery flavor so if you ever have like a really smooth buttery chardonnay or something something that's really like you know tastes like butter in your mouth that's probably been through some kind of malolactic fermentation oh 
Okay. Uh, and that's something also that can occur naturally, but usually it's done by adding like a suitable yeast that's going to break down uh, your L-malic acid into your L-plus lactic acid. All right. So after you've done that, or not done it, depending on the kind of wine you're trying to make, then you've got to get on board with aging. You can either age in oak, you can age in steel, or you can age in clay. That's right. The old school methods, the 8,000-year-old <laughs> methods of making wine are coming back, baby. There are people who are putting their wines in big clay tanks to age, just like the ancient Greeks, ancient Jiahu people, and the ancient Georgians. Crazy to think about. However you choose to age your thing, whether it's oak or steel or clay, is going to do different things to the character of the wine. There are phenols, which are a type of chemical that are present in, like, oak that can impart a kind of vanillary flavor to a wine that has been aged in oak. It's very common to age red wines in oak. It's less common to age whites, but again, sometimes they do go on oak. Yeah, there's lots of different stuff that can happen as a result of that maturing. It's mostly just, you know, different chemicals that are present in the container that are finding their way into the wine and creating some kind of additional flavor. Does that make sense? Yeah, so basically what you're saying is that, like, with the first ferment they do it in those big steel drums or whatever and so it's imparting not that much but then when you will go into the second phase is when you're getting fancy and you're like maybe we'll put some oak in here maybe we'll put some other stuff is that right yeah so like the malolactic fermentation which is the stuff that makes it buttery or the or the oak aging like may or may not happen at the same time they're just like different ways you can change the character of the wine ah. you've got like you've got the you've got the primary ferment where you're basically making the ethanol and that is going to do a lot to the flavor like depending on the kind of yeast you use whether it's a natural yeast or an added yeast then after you've done that primary ferment there's a bunch of stuff you can do. You can like put it through a second ferment that imparts like buttery flavors. You can put it into oak that's going to give it like vanillary flavors. You can put it into steel. You can put it into clay. You can do, you know, different different stuff to change the wine. So like sometimes people don't bother. Sometimes they do a primary ferment. They stick it into a steel tank, which isn't going to impart much flavor to it at all. And then they wait a few months and then they bottle it. Ah, or you can so do like a really... When you talk about like, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but I'm just thinking about price points and difference between wines. Like maybe mm -hmm. the cheaper ones is the ones where they just do that kind of stock standard. Like, here you go. Basic, your basic yeah. wine. It's been in a steel barrel. That's it. And then the fancier, more expensive ones have gone through malolactic fermentation and oaked uh, for 18 months. That kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, that's part of it. Like, there's all kinds of things that affect the the price of a bottle of wine. Like, yeah, for sure, the amount of winemaking that's gone into it. Like, if something's taken them two years as opposed to like a month, then Which, like absolutely, fair enough. They're gonna, fair enough. Yeah, they're gonna sell that. They're gonna sell that for more. Absolutely. Slight divergence here, and the way that this is different uh, is if you're making sparkling wine. So you still do the same thing first. You do your primary fermentation, and then you know sparkling wine sparkles. So they got to get that CO2 in there somehow, right? Mm -hmm. So the way they do that, there's a couple of different ways they do it. I'm just going to talk about two of them. The the first one is the method traditionnel, which is the traditional French method of making champagne. Oh. And what you do is you ferment your grapes in your primary fermentation. You run that juice out of there. So it's like it's wine at this point. Like it's mm -hmm. alcoholic. It's wine. Then you put that stuff in the bottle, in the champagne bottle that it's going to live its whole life in until it gets consumed. And you add a little bit of sugar and a little bit of yeast. And then you cap it. And then... Because that's now like a pressure-containing vessel, mm -hmm. as the yeast works on the sugar, goes through a second fermentation, adds a bit more alcohol to the mix, it's also producing CO2, which is not being released like it is when you do your primary ferment. It's being trapped inside the mixture, and so it's getting all bubbly. Yum. And that's what they mean by bottle ferment. If someone says this has been bottle ah, fermented, okay. that's what it means. It means there's been a fermentation, then it's been put in a bottle, and there's been a second fermentation, and it'll be kind of like fizzy and bubbly. 
I'm into that. I dig it. The other way you can do that is you can do the same thing, but you just do it in a big pressurized steel tank. That's how they make like Prosecco. So instead of like doing it in the bottle, you do your first fermentation, you put it in a second pressurized tank, you add more ethanol, add more yeast, and it produces the CO2 and a bit more alcohol. Make sense? Yeah, is one harder than the other, or is it just different um, ways? I imagine it's a lot harder to individually bottle up all the wines, and then like you have to like every bottle of champagne you have to kind of be responsible for individually, as opposed to just making like a huge batch, like a big tank of the stuff, right? Yeah, as we know from the uh, be... millennial trend of batch cooking and meal prepping, it's much easier to do all your cooking on Sunday <laughs> than to do it throughout the week. And that's what they decided to do with Prosecco. It's just like Prosecco prep Sunday. Okay, the last couple of steps in here, uh, you're going to do your filtering and fining, or you're not going to do those depending on whether you want to make a gritty kind of natural wine. So, so I know what trying filtering to you, is, but what's fining? Yeah. Fining is kind of like a chemical filtering. So filtering is just filtration. You make like a sieve, you pour the wine through it, and any stuff that's left in there just gets filtered out. Mm -hmm. Fining is where you add something to the mixture that binds to any like impurity particles and makes them like sink to the bottom and then, you know, makes it easier to filter or you can ah. just scoop them out or something. Again, if you're making a natural wine, you might say it's unfiltered and unfined. It's gritty. It's been wild fermented. We've barely done fucking anything to it. We crushed up the grapes. <laughs> we put it in a tank. We threw that shit in a bottle. Like that's literally a we did that's what that means ah. well i anyway. will say i've had some good natural wines in perth they can be funky and fun like and have sort of yeah. a weird beer vibe to them where they taste almost more like a sour beer than a wine that's taryn's natural wine corner <laughs> Great. So after you've done your filtering or fining or not done it, you're going to bottle and cork that shit and lay it down until it's ready to be drunk. So again, I stress, there's an enormous amount of variety on top of these, you know, basic steps here. But hopefully by now, you know what a tannin is. You know what someone means when they talk about wild ferment, malolactic fermentation, oak versus no oak, and how a sparkling wine sparkles. Well, hot damn. That didn't take Dude. that long, and I feel so much more knowledgeable. Well, I don't know about you, Taryn, but I need a little refill. So I think it's time for us to take a quick break and hear from our special guest. Ooh, let's do that. All right, so uh, I'm down here at the University of Western Australia, uh, along with our special guest for this episode of the show. Would you care to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Julie G. I'm a research fellow at the School of Psychological Science here at the University of Western Australia. Yeah, I've been in Perth for three years now. Ask right. me anything. Fantastic. Yeah, great. Okay, so you're here on campus. That's great for me because I've just toddled over from my lab to come talk to you, so yeah. that's been fantastic. Um, all right, Julie, so you work in the School of Psychological Sciences. What exactly do you do there? I'm in the research group called the Center for the Advancement of Research on Emotion. Mm-hmm. But we're, Succinct. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's because the acronym is CARE, and that sounds oh, nice. Oh, I love that. Oh, yeah. that's, See, that's really, really important. Nice. Yeah, okay. we're, we're psychologists. Yeah. We know about this stuff. Oh, we do the same stuff in physics. <laughs> like, every experiment is a horrible acronym. Like, we start with what we want it to be called, and then we're like, okay. Yeah, how hmm. can we fit this yeah. to a cool acronym? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay, so. Um, yes, yeah, so we look at the mainly the relationship between how we feel and how we think. So it's called the field of cognition and emotion. The piece that I'm really interested in in terms of the cognition piece is how people mentally represent future events. So obviously the future doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. It exists in our minds. And a lot of the decisions we make in the present moment is based on what we think is going to happen in the future. Right. So this isn't like Minority Report. We're not talking about precognition here, are we? No. We're not talking but... about future predictions. Oh? Well, we, yes. <laughs> That's it a leading is. but, Julie. 
I mean, yes, it is about that, but whether uh-huh. it's accurate is okay. another whole matter. Right. Okay, so, so, so I'm interested in how it is not accurate. I see. So you're interested in how people think about the future and how that impacts their actions in the present. Yes. Okay. That so is that, so interesting. Yeah, I, I think so. Mm. Um, I think the future is ever present, actually. That sounds like a soundbite oh. that you would see, or That's like something poetic. that you have yeah, oh. written above, like the door to a library or something. Yeah, maybe like, you want to have your own lab. Or, yeah, the know. future is ever present. I love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when we say, oh, think about the future, when we say, what are you thinking right now? Uh, we tend to refer to verbal ways of thinking, so thinking in words. Mm-hmm. But there's another way of thinking, which is when we think in mental pictures mm-hmm. and little movie clips. So that is called mental imagery, mm-hmm. and that's when we say, oh, can you imagine that? Can yeah. you imagine yeah. an apple on the table right now, and it's very shiny yeah. and red? You don't typically think the words in your head, apple on table, very shiny, yeah. like you're conjuring an image, right? Yeah. And, okay. and yeah. yeah, exactly. So, like, for example, if I'm stuck in an office, as I have been many times in my life, and mm-hmm. I'm picturing being on you know, a beach vacation in a couple of months' time, then that's imagination mm. or yes. visual future? What was the term? Well, it's mental imagery-based future. future thinking. Right. Okay. So you're focused on people's okay. visualizations, not their verbalizations of the future. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I mean, the verbalization is important, but, you know, a picture tells a thousand words. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the case of internal pictures and little movie clips... They, they represent concrete experiences. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to be able to visualize something, a scene, that has to be a specific scene. It can't mm-hmm. be a category of scenes. You just can't picture mm. a generic category of something. Yeah. So, in this way, it's interesting. Well, it's interesting for at least two ways. The first is that we obviously have a lot of memories, but we have memories of key events in our lives that are very vivid. Mm-hmm. So, why do we have that? Why don't we just learn from the past and code it as efficient units of information, just mm-hmm. as cold facts and knowledge? Mm-hmm. Like, why do we have this rich ability to relive certain important events? Okay. And those events tend to be emotional mm-hmm. or personally significant. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that the current theory, anyway, from um, cognitive neuroscience is that we remember these events in very vivid, rich sensory detail because we actually use those information to make predictions in the future. Right. The purpose of the brain is actually to make predictions all the time Mm -hmm. about what you're about to see, what you're about to experience, what might happen in the future, and therefore, if something bad is going to happen, what can you do to avoid that? It's like a survival thing. Yeah, it's very adaptive to Mm. have this. So when you say why, when you're asking that question why, you mean in an evolutionary sense. Yeah, functional terms. Yeah, so yeah. like, why is it not more efficient for us to yeah. do this or that? Or, you know, maybe if it is, it's more costly or difficult to have these really rich memories encoded in our brains, like, yeah. what would be the value of that in an evolutionary sense, maybe? Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, because the brain is does so many things, we don't, you know, if we remembered everything that happened, yeah. we you you couldn't. need the size of a, yeah. a brain of an elephant. Yeah. So... <laughs> it's 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 the brain's way of keeping important experiences that may hold significance for future things. So we tend to remember emotional events, for yep. example, rather than neutral mundane. Is that things. why that I can't forget like the most embarrassing thing that I did in middle school because it's my brain warning me to never do that again? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think it's very tagged good. As a salient, relevant thing. 
Uh, have emotions to <laughs> cue us to things that are important mm. or surprising mm. or very good or very bad because mm. we want to you know avoid the very bad things but we want to maximize the very good things we we know even without memories of things so for mm-hmm. entirely hypothetical or novel mm-hmm. experiences we don't have to personally have had that experience mm-hmm. for us to form a mental yeah. representation of... Vivid mental picture. Of, yeah, yeah, we can put ourselves in that situation and we can know that we don't want that to happen in the future. Yeah. So it's oh, this ability to... That's really interesting. Yeah, it's kind of mental time travel. Mental time travel. Yeah. Oh, I like that. So the idea is that if we can construct very vivid and detailed and compelling scenes in the future mm-hmm. then we can use that simulation to figure out okay is this something that's going to be pleasant is this something going to be unpleasant how do i make this happen if i think of a future event and it's very blurry i can't really think mm-hmm. of the concrete details that actually suggests that we don't know enough about this or it sends you a gut feeling of okay this is probably something that's unlikely mm-hmm. i think of it as the internal mental evidence that you retrieve and generate when you're trying to evaluate something in the future. And we use that evidence. So if I readily can imagine going to the shops tomorrow, mm-hmm. because I do that all the time and it's very plausible and it's, mm-hmm. you know, then I'm not going to have questions about whether that's likely to occur or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know how I feel about it based yeah. on the, the feelings that I generate with that simulation. Mm-hmm. Going to IGA to buy ice cream, for example. Cool. That sounds like fun. Yeah. So <laughs> that's very easy. Yeah. To to for me to mint. That's uh, something that I do want to picture myself doing. Yes. Definitely going yeah. to get ice cream. I mean, yeah, because I do it all the time. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. my mind easily. Sure. But for example, in the case of uh, people experiencing depression, which is part of my research mm-hmm. focus. Um, I found that during my PhD that when we're mind wandering, so when we're, we've got spare capacity, we're just mind wandering, our mind is tuning out of the, the task at hand and we're just randomly daydreaming about stuff. Uh, people who are having elevated depression symptoms, they actually lose this positive bias in terms of how much they tend to imagine the future. Right. So, healthy- so are you saying they stop amusing? Stop imagining the future, or is it that they imagine no, bad things? It's not that they imagine the future less or uh-huh. verbally think about the future less. It's the it's the balance between the negative thoughts about the future and the positive thoughts about the future uh-huh. in mental imagery form. So those pictures, right? So it kind of looks even handed, whereas the healthy individual has a very clear positive bias. Mm, okay. So, so would you go as far as to say that if you feel like the future looks kind of bad, that that's an indication of depression? Uh, I think it depends what the world is, mm. you know, so in the current... Oh, that's about the bias. Too real, girl. That's right. real. <laughs> yeah. I think it can be... There's a thing called de- depressive realism. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of research showing that they're even-handed in their predictions. They're yeah quite realistic. They don't overestimate mm-hmm. a lot of things that healthy people, um, healthy individuals not experiencing any symptoms. We tend to be very optimistically biased mm-hmm. towards the future. Right. So, As in like, okay, so even if it's like a bad situation, you're still thinking about it in a more positive skew than like a bad situation that you're catastrophizing if you're depressed. Yeah. Or if you're in a current bad situation, you expect that it won't be like that in the future. Right, right. Okay, yeah. so a healthy, a healthy yeah. person visualizes the future positively when their current situation is bad, whereas a depressed person would just expect it to get worse and worse. 
Yeah, these spontaneous thoughts that we have about the future and mental pictures, verbal、mm-hmm. thoughts and mental pictures, they are kind of the pieces of mental evidence that we have. We're not even aware of it, but we just have、mm-hmm. a stream of consciousness, and that actually influences our momentary judgments of how optimistic we feel about the future. Because、mm-hmm. obviously, that feeling comes from somewhere.、Um, yeah, it can be driven by world events, but the internal mind environment is very powerful and. I think that's something that's very understudied as a field, and certainly the general public. We're not aware of how our internal environment is skewing our perceptions of、mm-hmm. reality and of the future. That is so interesting. Hey,、um, I think I think that's everything that we、right. that we need on this. Thank you so much for joining、yeah. us. I so enjoyed learning about your research. All right, Taryn. Have you ever wondered about wine scoring, wine judging? You know, like you see, like a wine guide, and it's like an objective hundred point scale, saying this wine's a ninety nine and this wine's a ninety seven. Yeah, it always feels a bit reductive. I guess it's like I don't know. I also sometimes have issues when they even judge things numerically, like dance. Like real artsy things, and I'm like, how can you say that that dance was a seven? It's so subjective, you know. Yeah, absolutely, it is definitely subjective, and I mean that's the scientist in you talking, and it's also <laughs> true with wine. And believe it or not, this is a relatively controversial point. What what I want to talk to you about is like wine judging, the idea、Ooh. of like tasting a wine and being able to say like, oh, this is this kind of wine, and it comes from this region, and it's this good compared to this other kind of wine. Yeah, because who are you to say? Yeah, exactly. Who are you to say? One of those experts. On the Epicurious price point videos,、uh, who knows? <laughs> oh, I love those、um, videos. <laughs> yeah, they're extremely good watching.、Um, How expensive is this cheese? Only she can say. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Now, there's a lot of different ideas about this. Just like idea of being able to judge the quality of a wine, or certainly like judge the price of a wine. Like be able to say, oh, this is a five dollar versus a twenty dollar bottle. Well, yeah, like you know what when you're drinking like a like a Franzia or a Carlo Rossi, like a like a real a real vol volume based wine. You're you're drinking it for for how much there is, not for how good it is. Well, Taryn, interesting that you would say that because that in itself would be considered a pretty controversial point. I'm going to take you through some of that. Now, most now, college now, kids would say, agree with me. I don't know yeah, why I'm I mean, using them as my target demographic of people that would back me up. I don't mean in terms of why you're drinking it. I just mean in terms of like people's ability to distinguish price based on like、really? the taste of it. Be like, oh, this is a yeah, yeah, yeah. Experts versus non-experts give you wildly different results here,、uh, and also whether the tasting is blind or not blind. So whether you can like see the wine, see the bottle, or whatever. There's all kinds of studies that show the effect of like context, what the bottle looks like, if there are any tasting notes on the back, like if someone tells you that this wine is really good before you drink it, like that that can all influence you so so、oh, so、yeah. much. Absolutely.、Um, I mean, if you buy a A shirt from Gucci, and it's a plain white T-shirt. Your brain is still going. I'm wearing a $200 Gucci T-shirt, and so you're gonna think it's better than one you got from Target, whether or not the quality、yeah. is right. I mean, absolutely. But one thing that has been shown, like time and again, to the point that like I'm not even gonna go through any of these studies. Like, just go look them up. Non-expert wine tasters. It's been shown a lot of times that in a blind tasting, they are fucking useless. Like, they cannot guess shit about a wine. Like, you basically just flip flip a coin on like whether it's a really expensive bottle or a cheap bottle or whatever. But it's more interesting to look at like experts or people who judge wine shows and stuff like that. Oh, like a sommelier. Is that how you say that term? Yeah, sommelier. A simulion, a simulion. I've only ever read it. I've never heard it said. 
assumeyon. Um, all right. I'd like to highlight for you just like a couple of studies uh, that, that show some of the different aspects of this whole how good are people at actually tasting and knowing things about wine. I'd like to start with one study in particular, which is quite controversial. This is a study published in the journal Brain and Language. It's called The Colour of Odours. And yeah, this one gets bandied about a fair bit when people talk about how well people can actually taste wine. In this study, what they did was uh, they, they took 54 students at a wine like school, people who were studying to be wine experts and they they gave them all samples of a red wine and a white wine and they said hey go ahead give this a smell give this a taste give this a swirl and a look around you know whatever you want go nuts with it and then they asked them after they'd done that to describe the smell of the wine like they basically said like okay take the red one take the white one and, and you know write down some tasting notes based on the scents of these wines you know which is a thing that people claim to be able to do when they're wine tasting they're like oh yes this has characters of uh, Dark oak and deep plum, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Jammy, yeah. Fr- you know, plums... Yeah. Peaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. So, so with the red wine, people pretty much routinely wrote down that it was like jammy and fruity and all kinds of stuff that you would typically use to describe red wine yeah. and uh, the, the smell. And then about the white wine, they said all kinds of stuff that you would typically use to describe white wine, right? And these are people who are studying at wine school, so they should know what they're talking about. Yeah. The thing that they didn't know about the study is that the two samples of wine were actually the same wine, and one of them had been turned red no. with food dye. Yeah. No. Yeah, so the implications <laughs> of this one, I know, it's pretty embarrassing for those people, but the implications of this one, I think, are just that like, context matters a lot. Like, your eyes can fool you, you look at something that's red, that's why the study's called The Colour of Odours. It was the idea that, like, they're seeing this red thing and thinking, like, oh, that smells red, <laughs> because our brains yeah, are wow. dumb. Um, there's also the possibility, and this is just something that I thought about this study, of, you know, social pressure. These people are at wine school. They're probably wine people. They're in, like, a wine society to some extent. And if they see a red wine and someone's, like, describe how it yeah. smells and they don't say it smells like a red wine, then they're going to look like an idiot. And, they're like, going to look, not gonna... yeah, like they don't know what they're talking about and they shouldn't be at that school. Yeah, and they're not going to, like be like, uh, I think this is white wine that you've dyed red, because that would be a crazy thing for a person to do. <laughs> and it turns out that's exactly what had happened. Well, I mean, it shows you the, the power of social pressure, right? Like, yeah. wasn't there that social psychology study they did where, like, they had people get into an elevator, and then everybody but one person was an actor, and they all turned to face the back, and after a certain amount of time, the one person who wasn't an actor would be like, oh maybe they all know something that I don't, and then they would turn and face the back. It's kind of the same thing, right? Take from that study your own conclusions, all right? Like, it says something about the quality of our ability of supposed experts to, like, smell wines, but also, you know, know, maybe it's... So social pressure. I also would like to tell you about a slightly different series of experiments that were conducted by a man named Robert Hodgson, who is okay. a winemaker in the US and also a retired oceanographer. So Taryn, oh, maybe there's yeah. a career yeah, maybe there's a career path for you if you ever want to go make wine in California. I mean, yeah, you it sounds pretty pretty sweet. Yeah, so what Robert Hodgson did is he noticed that like he would send his wines to different wine competitions and the, the the kinds of results he would get, like the scores, the medals, seemed to be basically random, like with the same bottles of wine. And he was like, hmm, 
I wonder what that's about. I wonder how objective these judgments actually are, because he was also like a, you know, scientist. And so he basically linked up with the coordinators of the California State Fair in 2005 and said, I'd like to do an experiment. And the experiment he ran was that the panels of judges were going to be presented like usual with like a bunch of different wines throughout the day. Like they're sitting there throughout the day, they're tasting a bunch of wines and they're writing Mm -hmm. down scores for them, right? To like determine the winner of the medals and stuff. And what they didn't know was that throughout the day, they were going to be presented with the same bottle of wine three times. And then the study was going to be taking the scores they gave them and basically comparing them to see how consistent they were to try and be like, do you give the same wine the same score, you know, every time that you, you smell? it right or taste it or whatever that seems like a pretty reasonable thing to to check and if these measurements are supposed to be objective they should be pretty consistent right yeah yeah well what Hodgson (laughs) found was that it wasn't just this thing he's since done a bunch more similar experiments at different wine competitions over the course of like 10 years and he reports that only about 10 percent of the judges are consistent on the scores that they give the wines like the same wine represented different times and even those judges like even those 10 percent who might have been really consistent one year will then be like really inconsistent the next year so it seems just kind of like yeah it's pretty random chance so there's no like one true wine taster because i really wanted there to be like except this one guy steve he's really good everyone else is terrible there are some people, and we'll get to some of that evidence a bit later, who actually maybe can be the one true wine taster. Because there's some studies, to, to jump ahead a little bit, that show that, like, yeah, some people actually can do a pretty good job. But, uh, so th- the point with this study, the results show that an average judge's score, like, out of 100 on a bottle of wine, would vary up to four points, like, plus or minus four points on the same wine throughout the day. So they could have called it 88 one time, 92 the next time, wow. which is, like... Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like a lot. On the same day. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a lot. But when you consider that, like, it's a 100-point scale, but really it's a 30-point scale, because no wines get below 70, and none really get above, like, 98. And, like, gold medals that mean a lot for, like, the sales of a wine's brand are awarded based on this. And so the difference between a 96 and a 92 is huge. Yeah, that's and actually massive. Basically, the conclusion is, like, take take these, like, wine competition medals and these, like, places that pretend to be like, oh, yeah, this wine was a 99 and this one was a 97. You've got to kind of take that with a bit of a grain of salt. Well, yeah. You know um, what reminds me of actually there was a study i read about um judges like criminal case judges and it found that they were more likely to convict and give harsher sentences like right before lunchtime because they're hangry yeah but it it just shows you like the fallibility of people like we're just humans and we're not these computers that are like beep boop that wine is a 98 we're just doing our best out here and Usually that means it's not going to be consistent much as we would like to think that it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's part of it. And also, like, you know, Hodgson does note that, like, some of the judges were better than others. Some of them were much, much worse than that four points. Some of them were a bit better. And, like, he essentially says, like, well, well, look, like, you know, no one's denying. Like, you can, you can do this experiment for yourself. Get a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon. Get a glass of Merlot. Even if you wouldn't necessarily know, like, if you're not trained, like, what the different flavors are, if you taste one and you taste the other, you're probably going to be able to at least be like, well, these taste different. So, like, no one's, no one's saying that you can't like taste differences in wine but part of part of what Hodgson is saying is that like if you're judging a hundred wines like you're sitting there all day and you're gonna taste a hundred wines and try and be like "Mm, this one's a 96 versus a 92 in quality like you're fucked there's no way you can do that with any kind of consistency or at the very least very 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 few people can well I'm gonna remember that the next time at a dinner party and somebody's like this is a very like you know, this is a 99-rated wine. I'll be like, well, yeah. actually. Yeah. How was it rated? Was that the only subjective. wine they tasted that day? <laughs> Everybody loves a know-it-all yeah. at a dinner party. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone loves that person. So now on the more positive side, though, there, there have been a couple of studies that have shown that sometimes uh, people can actually do a little bit of a better job. Um, That's good. Right then, we weren't talking about blind tastings with either of those two previous studies. They were just like, tastings, here's the wine, look at it, smell it, you know, whatever. Oh, we are going to talk okay. about blind tastings now in the next two studies because there were two... Yeah, there's an interesting difference there. Like, there's been a lot of evidence that, like, looking at the bottle or being told things about the wine can, like, completely influence your your opinions about the oh, wine. yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you've experienced this yourself. Everybody has. But, like, you know, it's also been rigorously scientifically studied is that, like, they gave people, like, the same... There's another study, which I'm not going to go into the details of, but suffice to say, they gave people, like, the same wine once in a bottle that made it look cheap and once in a bottle that made it look expensive and, like, yeah, guess what huh. happened there? Like, the people enjoyed it more when it was in the expensive-looking bottle. But, See, that's crazy um, to me, though, because like, I feel like in my heart of hearts, I can tell a Franzia from a $50 bottle, but maybe it's just the packaging, and if you took it out of the plastic, you know, terrible container that it's in, it wouldn't taste that bad. Well, look, there are, there are conflicting reports about this, and look, there are probably, like, wild extremes of, like, yeah, like, what we in Australia would call goon versus oh, you know goon. that you can probably kind of tell a bit more easily any anyway that kind of gets to one of these this next study so there was this 2008 study by a person named robin goldstein in the journal of mm-hmm. wine economics that looked at six thousand blind tastings looked at a whole bunch of different tastings blind tastings so they're not being told anything about the wine they're just tasting it and like deciding how much they enjoyed it and did find a positive correlation between the price of the wine and how much people enjoyed it yeah. but There's a caveat there, which is that that correlation is not present for everybody. It's only present for, like, a subset of individuals, basically, like, wine experts. Ah. And, like, that's not even necessarily saying it's a marker of, like, enjoyability, which is subjective. It's just, like, they can taste it and be like, oh, well, you know, I can just taste that this one went through this kind of fermentation process and therefore probably costs more. Or, you know, it could be be that. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, but at the very least, some people can do blind tasting, like a subset of people, and be like, okay, that's a fancy wine versus that's a cheap wine. Um, So all is not lost. No, and the really interesting study that I want to talk about now, also in the Journal okay. of Wine Economics, Volume Thirteen, Number Four. What, a, what an this interesting is a study. journal to exist. I know, I know. The Journal oh, yeah. of Wine Economics. Couple- I mean, I read a couple of their studies and like, yeah, there's great stuff in there. Um, This study was looking into the effects of training, whether you can become one of those people who can distinguish things about wine. So what they did is they went to the Oxford University Blind Tasting Society, which sounds like one of the fanciest, swankiest (laughs) organizations I can fathom existing. Just a bunch of Oxford Oxford fancy lads doing fancy. I mean, like. I would come up with that idea. Like, I want to do that. I want to join the Oxford University Blind Tasting Society. It sounds, oh, it sounds really, fantastic. really lush. Yeah. Um, so what they did was they put a bunch of students, uh, they selected 15 to analyze through a five-week intensive wine training course. Oh, which sounds, how grueling for them. Yeah, it sounds grueling, doesn't it? So the training <laughs> sessions involved just doing blind tastings, basically. Like they, they, you know, put on a blindfold and then served you a bunch of wine and you sat there in silence and drank the wine and basically like wrote down what you thought about it. Like the dominant grape varieties, the flavors, the tried to guess like the place of origin of the wine the country, the region, the sub-region, maybe like what year it was from, what they call the vintage, and also just like a subjective impression of how much you liked it. And yeah, I mean, they they did find that after training, 
some people did get better at identifying like dominant varieties and stuff like that. People weren't particularly good at identifying the region like ever. They mm-hmm. they could never really get that down. The conclusion of this study didn't support that. And they did say that there was like a sort of correlation between the subjective enjoyment measures and both price and also age of the wine. So like the vintage mm. and also yeah, how expensive it was. So like yeah, maybe after going through wine training, people can do a better job of like identifying things like fancy wine versus cheaper wine. You can certainly like learn the flavors of different varietals better. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like uh, at, at the end of all of that, uh, I I am left with like my conclusion on wine tasting is I'm always just like, well, take it with a grain of salt. You know, maybe some people can do it. Maybe some people can't, but certainly a lot of it, like when people are like, oh yeah, this is a 98 versus a 96, and oh yeah, you can really get all these different notes in there, and oh, I can taste this, and I know immediately that it's a King Valley Riesling. I think that stuff is, you know, you got to take that stuff with a grain of salt. At least that's what the studies seem to indicate. Yeah, I mean, the my inner nerd wants to like do a meta-analysis of all these studies you've talked about. So that's when, in science, you take all of the papers that have been published on a subject and say, what do they all find on average? Yeah. So... Because there's yeah, some I mean, really conflicting stuff in there, right? Part of the problem is that they're all looking at slightly different things. Like, some of them yeah. are looking at, like, yeah, like, smells, and some of them are looking at, like, blind versus not blind tastings, and some of them are looking at, like, how much does enjoyment correlate with quality, and it, yeah, it'd be interesting. But, Taryn, we've just been talking about the past, okay? We've been talking about uh-huh. things people have done with wine, and we're just looking backwards, all right? I think we can all agree, <laughs> looking backwards is a bad, bad time, and we got to look forwards, Taryn, and I want to talk to you yeah, about Yeah, forget the-, the last 45 minutes of this show. Yeah, It's time to move that. into the future. <laughs> it's time to talk about the future of wine, okay? Both the good and the bad. I'm okay. going to get a couple things out of the way, all right? Uh, Firstly, okay. big tech is coming for wine in a big way. <laughs> It's coming what for your wine. What isn't big tech coming for, really? Yeah, well, exactly. It's coming for your wine like it's coming for everything else. We've come a long way since clay pots. Although, some people are still using those clay pots. So, you know, yeah, I guess some so things come... Gotta, gotta mix the old and the new. Some things never change. But... Just to talk about some of the ways that tech is impacting wine. People are getting more and more into studying, like, the microclimate of the region that they are growing their grapes in their specific vineyard, more so than just, like, the overall climate of the region, right? So, like, say, you know, there's well-known wine regions, like, for example, the one near me, Margaret River in West Australia. It is kind of known for a certain kind of climate and a certain kind of wine, but it doesn't mean that that is exactly the same everywhere within that large geographic region. So, like, people want to know, like, oh, what's going on in my specific vineyard? So oh, okay. So like I went and did a wine tour in the like one of the two, I think, wineries in the ACT. Mm-hmm. And they were telling us about how they have these two different like wines that they're selling. And there's one that had the grapes planted on the sunny side of this hill. And they were like, yeah, so it's much warmer and drier over there. Whereas over here in the valley, like we get misty most mornings. And so it's like a totally different microclimate then, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And like the climate, like the temperature of the region and like the soil pH and stuff actually matters like a great deal for the kind of wine that you can make. To to put it short, in in cooler regions, the grapes don't ripen as quickly. And so there's less sugar, they're more acidic, Mm. changes like the thickness of the skin. So the tannin structures that develop, whereas like things that are typically like sugarier and fruitier are 
probably going to do better in warm climates. So like okay. there are certain kinds of grapes that you want to grow in warm climates and certain kind of grapes that you want to go in cool climates. And there are certain kind of grapes you can grow in both climates but will produce a wildly different wine. So say you take your Pinot Noir grapes and you grow them in Tasmania versus growing them in like Western Australia, the wine is going to taste different because the rate at which the grapes ripen, that's going to like affect the sort of sugar content that's present in the grapes. It's going to affect yeah. the thickness of the skins. And, you know, when we're talking about all that stuff in fermentation in terms of like converting the sugar to alcohol and also developing like tannin structure, thickness of the skins, amount of sugar, amount of acid and stuff is all relevant in terms of how the wine ends up tasting. Ah, so, so that would be a really fun like experiment or like realistically like drinks night where you just have a bunch of Pinot Noirs from a bunch of different locales and then try and compare how they all taste very different even though it's the same grape. Yeah, no, absolutely. You can you can definitely do that. And like that's that's what people will talk about like if you hear someone talk about like a cool climate Riesling versus like uh, yeah. a regular Riesling. They just mean it's been grown in a place where it's cooler, so there's probably not as much sugar in the grapes. It's probably not going to be as sweet, it might be a bit more tart and like a bit more acidic or something. Um yeah. Yeah, so the climate, like the temperature matters a great deal, and as farmers want to know, like, oh, where should I plant my Pinot, where should I plant my Cabernet Sauvignon, they need to know which of their various fields are hot and cold, so people have started using drones. Like, it's, oh it's you know, it's, it's, it's becoming more and more a thing. Drones or other kinds of pieces of technology. Yeah, I was going to say, drone seems pretty, like, overly high-tech for something that you could just stick a probe in the ground and get just as well. Yeah, I mean, a probe in the ground is local, though, Taryn. Like, you put a probe in the ground, it's going to tell you the temperature of that bit of ground. But if you've got, like, oh, but you want the kilometers whole and kilometers of vineyard, you oh. can, like, fly over and do, like, infrared mapping and stuff and, like, try and figure out the average temperature. It's that kind of stuff, like, putting putting monitors in the soil themselves to monitor, like, temperature and pH and moisture and stuff are becoming more popular in wine and are going to change the way the wine industry works. Very cool. But... But that's but, one thing. But there's yeah. too many buts in this sentence. Yeah. I mean, remember a moment ago, Taryn, how we were talking about how the temperature matters a great deal in terms of oh, how you make no. wine? Yeah. And now how we're coming. talking about the future of wine? Yeah. No. <laughs> that's right. It's climate change, baby. Climate, climate change, change is going to oh. get its grubby mitts all over Bane the wine you know existence. and love. Oh. Yeah. Taryn studied climate change during her PhD. And I yeah. Did. So you probably saw this one coming. Yeah. Um, Remember how we spoke about how, oh, there's certain regions where these kind of grapes grow well and there's certain regions where these kind of grapes grow well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as the planet gets warmer on average, (laughs) all of that is going to change. I mean, before we get to that, there's a few other aspects of climate change that, like, are going to affect wine, but will also just affect, like, all crop productivity. So, like, just to rattle them off, floods from rising sea levels are going to cause, like, a lot of wine areas to not no longer be plantable drought yep. and salinity in other areas are going to affect crops water scarcity Tight. in general like all of that stuff's coming Love for it. wine the same way it's also coming for like every other crop growing industry but the <sighs> yeah Fantastic. we're going to we're going to we're going to focus more on the way that like climate change is changing wine regions the, the funny thing is like this isn't all bad like in the short term this isn't like all <laughs> bad news because historically- oh good we can enjoy some wine on our way out <laughs> Exactly. Historically, (laughs) you've only really been able to grow wine in latitudes like 30 to 50 degrees north or south of the equator. So that's like a little band of like regions to the north and south of the equator where the temperatures are usually like about right to grow wine. Yeah. Places that are more northern are typically too cold, etc, etc. As the planet is warming, 
places to the north of those 30 to 50 degree latitudes, places like Sweden, Norway, the Netherlands, parts of England, are all of a sudden, for the first time ever, able to support world-class wine industries. There's now wow. world-class wine coming out of Sweden, Norway, Netherlands, England, which has never really happened before. So, like, that's kind of neat in terms of, like, wine's future. There's all these different regions that are being uh, made inhabitable. Yeah, what a weird thing. Can you imagine, like, having an, an English red? Like, yeah. It's this starting is to be a thing. Scottish white wine. <laughs> yeah, a wine from the Scottish Highlands. Like, yeah, no, you, that, that's, that kind of stuff is starting to happen as a result of climate that's change, wild. which is just, yeah, just wild. And, you know, good for those regions. That's, that's nice. But, you know, at the same time, a lot of the regions that we know and love are becoming more and more difficult so like Ooh. people are starting to in common wine regions people are starting to have to plant vines like higher and higher up in higher altitudes which like typically would have been impossible to use before because of mm -hmm. the temperature up there and now they're saying like well this is the place we have to go because it's too hot down below um in in italy there have been a lot of reports of sunburnt wines like grapes that are just getting sunburnt. like completely scorched yeah like grapes just getting scorched and dried out by extra hot sun that summer wow yeah, they're reporting that like the juices when they're pressing the juices and then like getting those juices out to ferment them, the juices are coming out hotter. Mm. And and one of the one of the side effects of that is that you know we talked about hotter means grapes develop faster, means they've got more sugar. It means that like a lot of these wines are becoming like fruitier and also higher alcohol content. Yeah, I was gonna say like, higher alcohol content because there's yeah, so much yeah. more sugar in there. That's right. And like these aren't necessarily unappealing traits, like fruitier, more alcoholic wines, but it is Ooh, changing. Sign me up. <laughs> Yeah, it is changing the character of the wines that people have known and loved for many hundreds of years. Yeah, uh, there has been There's been a study done by a lady named Elizabeth Volkovich, who is a professor of forest and conservation sciences, who has mm -hmm. been looking at records of wine harvest dates all the way back to the 1300s. And I love that we have that as a record. Keep yeah, the important I know. stuff. <laughs> like when, when throughout the year people were harvesting wines, like all the way back. Yeah, and and what this study found is that right now are the earliest harvests ever in recorded history. Wow. So yeah, so like people are harvesting their wines like several weeks earlier than our uh, distant few hundred year old cousins were, and that's just because the grapes are ripening faster and faster. Viticulturalists and grape scientists uh, are worried that if the grapes ripen too quickly, as we were talking about before, the skins and the tannins may not develop properly, which can lead to like disappointing wines. So yeah, as a result of that, some of the famous wine regions are starting to think about changing how they do things. Yeah. So you, you've you've probably heard of Bordeaux. It's a very famous French wine yes. region. Yes, the Burgundy and Bordeaux are the the fanciest wine regions I can think of. Well, interestingly, like. French wine regions are very, very protective about the no. kind of wine you can grow there. In Bordeaux, the producers are only allowed to, to use grapes, like certain varieties of grape that are permitted by Appalachian authorities. However, yeah. So I love like, that there's some dude just sitting on a mountain, I assume, who's just like, nope, I, my, my ruling stands. Pinot Noir or nothing. Yeah, you're only allowed to go Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. I mean, yeah, Cab Sauv and Merlot, two very common grapes in Bordeaux. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, two very common grapes in the Champagne region, used to make champagne. Oh. Um, that's starting to change. In Bordeaux, right now, they are looking at, for the first time in a very long time, testing some different grapes because they feel like they're probably going to need to, as the climate of the region changes, start growing grapes that are better suited to that climate. So they're testing some grapes called Turiga Nacional, 
They're testing Marcelin, which is a cross between Cab Sav and Grenache. Castets, yeah. which is, yeah, like a different kind of variety of red. Uh, and Arenanoa. Arenanoa. Do you speak yeah. French? <laughs> I don't, Taryn, believe it or not. <laughs> well, neither do I, so someone else is going to have to correct us. They, yeah, please tweet at us the proper pronunciations. So those are the reds that they're testing in Bordeaux. They're also going to test a few whites. And if those go well, well, maybe there'll be less Cabernet Sauvignon coming out of Bordeaux, but maybe there'll be more delicious um, Marcelin, perhaps. Something <laughs> like that. One of the other things people are worried about also, maybe cork won't be as common anymore. I mean, cork kind of kind of been on the way out for a while, but it has been making a bit of a comeback. But like cork can only grow in very specific regions and very specific oh. conditions. Uh, and yeah, that people are worried that like climate change is going to make it hard to grow cork, which is already kind of difficult. Well, I mean, here in Australia, like a big difference I noticed when I moved over here is that I would say the vast majority of wines that I'm drinking here have screw caps. Whereas back in the States, if you started hitting like just $20 wines, like they were almost all corked. And even some of the cheaper ones were too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like that has been on the rise again. It's becoming more popular, but yeah, it it may have to phase out again. Anyway. It's easier to open. (laughs) If that all seems a little bit bleak to you, just uh, Uh, take solace in the fact Take solace in the fact that there's more interesting, cool wine regions for you to enjoy. Go get yourself a nice glass of Swedish Mellow and uh, <laughs> see see how that suits your palate. Okay. In, enjoy it while it lasts. Enjoy it while yes. whilst the wine... Get the wine while the wine getting is good. Well, I know we're only talking about grape wines today, but I, I'd be interested to learn about how all of this is affecting other types of wine, like blueberry wine or raspberry wine or strawberry wine. Like, how are they all being affected as well? Maybe we'll do an episode about those in the distant future. Oh, yes. Give me an excuse to buy some blueberry wine. I'm on it. (laughs) All right. Well, that is it for our show. Thank you so much, Ben. I learned so much about wine today, and I feel a little more confused, honestly, because it turns out that wine tasting is a lot more complicated than I thought. But at least I'm well-equipped enough to go into a dinner party with some knowledge in my back pocket. So thank you for that. Yeah, I hope you learned a little bit about like what some of those different wine words that get tossed around mean and how those might impact the character of the wine. And I hope that you, the listener, if that's your thing, enjoyed a glass along with Taryn and I throughout the show. I enjoyed my glass. I don't know about you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Thank you to our special guest. Yeah, that was such fun. Yeah. Hey, uh, if you like the show, you could could think about leaving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're currently listening or telling a friend about the show yeah i mean like ratings and reviews for a show that's just starting out like us mean a great deal so if you like us we would really really appreciate that or just tell yes. a friend about the show um if you want to get in touch you can follow us well you can follow me at dr bt McAllister. i'm at at science taren on twitter yeah that's that's on twitter for, for me as well or you can get curio network just about anywhere facebook twitter instagram that's the podcast network we belong to or you can get our brand new as yet pretty pretty unused twitter <laughs> at principal cast which is explicitly for this show. So go follow us there to hear all the details, all the news about the next episode, etc. and so forth. I have some fun memes planned, so definitely check it out. Yeah, check it out. Oh, also, I I will say, so we've been doing a monthly thing, but the next episode is going to be in about two weeks because we're going to keep doing the monthly thing, but we're going to move from the end of the month release to the mid-month release. That's basically to facilitate making my life a bit easier as I continue to make another podcast, which is called Naked Astronomy with the Naked Scientists, which comes out towards the end of the month. Just science podcasts out the wazoo. Yeah, if you need more of Big B in your life, you can go check out Naked Astronomy. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. I'm Ben McAllister. 
I'm Taryn Lobenstein. And stay uncertain. Uh-huh.